0: Good morning, everyone. Um, in today's lesson, we're going to be doing something a little bit different in the fact that we're going to be covering much more material uh, than we normally uh, would do. We're going to, In fact, we're going to cover 28 chapters, Job chapter 4 through Job chapter 31. The title of our lesson is The Speeches. Now, chapter 4 <clears throat> begins a, a long section in the book of Job where Job's friends uh, counsel him, uh, rebuke him in many ways, and then Job answers them. Uh, The speeches are made up of three rounds, uh, with each speech followed by a reply from Job. And so the first round of speeches is covered in uh, chapter 4 through 14. Uh, Eliphaz will speak, then Job, then Bildad, then Job, then Zophar, then Job again, and it'll it'll uh the next two speeches in the in the following chapters will kind of follow that that same routine uh, round two um, will be covered in chapters fifteen through twenty one and then the round three or third round of speeches in chapters twenty two through thirty one Now the thing that prompts job's friends to make their speeches is his outburst in chapter 3. Now, if you uh, remember in chapter 3, they had sat there for seven days in silence, and then Job opens his mouth, and he cursed the day of his birth. Now, as we said last week, Job has been suffering for months. Um, he's not sleeping. He's not eating. He's in constant pain. Um, his his wife has has rebuked him. And so he he's just at a very, very low point. And so in chapter 3, he protests his condition. He says, well, why was I even born? Why wasn't I stillborn? Why can't I just die? And of course, the friends who are sitting there listening to this, they understand that this is a protest against God, because after all, Job himself said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. It is the Lord who gives life. So if you're protesting the day you were born, in effect, you're protesting against God. So when Job's friends hear this, they just cannot stay silent any longer. And so the first round of speeches begins with Eliphaz in chapters 4 and 5. Now you got to remember, many of us read Scripture and we just go by the verses and we don't think about the person who's really talking sometimes. And and we need to try to remember that these are people um, and they have personalities. And Eliphaz, if we were to look at him, we would say that he's probably the most refined or the most civilized, I guess I would say, of the three friends. He He says what he needs to say or what he wants to say. But he does it in a fairly gentle and a very tactful way. Uh, what we'll find out is he, what, the way that he does it is he leaves a lot of things unsaid and, and kind of open to insinuation. Let me give an example. Let's look at Job 4, 1 through 5. It says this, And Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you have instructed many, and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees. But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Now, Eliphaz is pointing out that Job, you're a man who's taught many. You've comforted many. You've supported many in their time of need. Now, when it's your time of need, you seem to be dismayed. Now, again, already here is the insinuation that Job is not, is not practicing what he preaches. Now, that is just an insensitive or insensitive and unnecessary rebuke <clears throat> to a righteous man. But it is going to be the first of a lot of rebukes over the next few chapters. Now, Eliphaz goes on <clears throat> to spell out a truth that will run through the speeches of all three of his friends. He does this in chapter 4, 7 through 9. He says this, Remember, who that was innocent ever perished, or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity, iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. In other words, Eliphaz believes, and his friends believe, that suffering is the result of sin and prosperity is a result of righteousness. And in fact, they see this as an absolute spiritual law. And it even goes beyond that. They believe that extreme suffering or extreme prosperity must equate or correlate with extreme sin and sin. Righteousness. In other words, if you sin in an extreme manner, you will suffer in an extreme manner. If you are extremely righteous, you will be extremely prosperous. So they, they see this law of sowing and reaping and sin and righteousness as an absolute spiritual law. Um, and not just a principle, but a law. Now, I've got a, a diagram um, for those of you that are listening to the podcast, you may not be able to see this, but I've got a diagram up, and at the top it says God's justice, and then it's and on one side it's got an arrow pointing to a box labeled righteousness, and in that box there are benefits to righteousness such as health, prosperity, and peace. There's another arrow under God's justice that goes to another box that's labeled sin, and underneath that are the effects that they see of sin such as sickness, poverty, and adversity. Now, to Eliphaz and his friends, this is their absolute spiritual law. This is their philosophy on life, that God's justice requires him to reward righteous men and prosper them, and He, God's justice requires him to punish sinful men, okay? And, and, and they just believe that as an absolute spiritual law. Let's read on. Job 5, 8 through 13. Here's Eliphaz again. As for me, I would seek God, and to God would I commit my cause, who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. Now, once again, he's not saying you should do this. He's saying in a very tactful way, well, you know, if it was me, this is what I would do. Now, later on in that same set of verses, he says this. Talking about God. He catches the wise in their own craftiness. Now, normally I wouldn't even have included that little verse there. But I did it for a particular reason. That is because that verse shows up in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 3.19. It says, For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. That, of course, is Paul And he's quoting Eliphaz in Job 5.13. Now, this is important for a couple of reasons. Number one, it shows us that Paul saw the book of Job as inspired scripture. um, Because in the way he refers to it, for it is written. That's the way Jesus replied to to, uh, the devil when he was being tempted, for it is written. Uh, They are referring to Old Testament scripture. And here, Paul refers to the book of Job. But the other thing I want you to see is he's literally quoting Eliphaz. Now listen, what Eliphaz is saying there is absolutely 100% true, that God catches the wise in their craftiness. But here's the thing, it has nothing to do with Job's situation. It says his theology, theology is dead on. He's speaking the truth. What he's saying is absolutely 100% true. It's so true, in fact, that Paul will quote him in the New Testament, but yet it has absolutely nothing to do with Job. And we need to think about that, right? Because we can have our our theology, we can quote scripture left and right and be dead on and be completely out of place, completely misapplying it in particular situations. So we need to be careful of that. Job five seven through nineteen, Eliphaz says, "Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves." Again, he's not saying um, you you're. He's reproving you. He just said, "Blessed is the one whom God reproves." Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty, for He wounds, but He binds up; He shatters, but His hands heal. He will deliver you from six troubles and seven. No evil shall touch you. And then in in five twenty seven, he ends up with this: "Behold." This we have searched out. It is true. Hear and know it is for your good. And let me tell you a lot of the things Eliphaz says, once again, very beautiful. Um, All of them true. And they have absolutely nothing to do with Job. He's, uh, He's dead on with what he's saying, but he's completely missed the mark with the situation. You see, Eliphaz's problem is is that he sees all thre- things through the lens of his th- theology. You know, we have a saying about looking through rose-colored glasses. Well, he's looking through the glasses of his philosophy on life. And he sees his philosophy, or he sees that absolute spiritual law of sowing and reaping. So for him, he has no choice but to assume from Job's extreme suffering that Job has sinned in an extreme manner. That's him and all of his friends. Are They just believe that. But we're also going to see that Job has a very similar problem because, see, Job believes in the same law. He's no different from his friends. But Job, the difference there is he knows he's innocent. So the struggle that Job will have is whether God is unjust. And we're going to see throughout these speeches that Job continually uses the analogy of a courtroom and a judge and a lawyer and and making his case because that's what Job is struggling with is the justice of God. Now, Job is going to respond in verses, uh, sorry, in chapter 6 through 7. Chapter 6, 1 through 4. Then Job answered and said, Oh, that my vexation were weighed and all my calamity laid in the balances. For then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore, my words have been rash. Now, Job admits that his outburst in chapter 3 sounds rash. But he says the reason he said it was because of the excessive heaviness, heavier than the sands of the sea. Uh, that's how heavy he sees his his grief. And so he admits, I might have spoke rashly when I cursed the day of my birth. But he goes on, chapter, chapter 6, verses 14 through 17, and says this, he who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. My brothers are treacherous as a torrent bed, as torrential streams that pass away, which are dark with ice and where the snow hides itself, and when they melt they disappear. When it's hot, they vanish from their place. I don't know if, if this is where we come up with the uh, uh the the adage of fair weather friends, but this is basically what Job is is talking about. He said You're like a snow-fed stream. You're there for a while, but then when it turns hot, you're gone. In in other words, are you my friends or not? Are you, where are my friends when I really need them? Chapter 6, verses 28 through 29, he says this, But now, be pleased to look at me, for I will not lie to your face. Please turn, let no injustice be done. Turn now, for my vindication is at stake. Is there any injustice on my tongue? Cannot my palate discern the cause of calamity? Job is saying, listen, don't you think I know the difference between right, right and wrong? Um, don't you think I know all the things that you know? Look at me. I will not lie to you is what he's, what he's telling them. Now, Bildad, uh, the second friend, will respond in chapter 8. Now, if Eliphaz strikes us as the most tactful or the most gentle then Bildad is pretty much the opposite. He kind of comes across as a, as a staunch traditionalist, the, the one who sees everything in black and white and who prides himself on telling it like it is. Job 8, 1 through 3, Bildad says this, Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, How long will you say these things, and the words of your mouth be a great win? Does God pervert justice, or does the Almighty pervert the right? Now, once again, I, I wish we, we could you could see that box on the screen. You see, God's justice in his mind requires that he prosper the righteous and he punish the wicked. So he's saying, listen, it, it, God doesn't pervert justice. He's not going to punish you if you didn't do anything wrong. And, and he says, you're just, you're just, you're a windbag is basically what he calls Job. You're just talking to hear yourself talk. You see, he believes in that same absolute truth as Eliphaz, and he vigorously defends God's justice. Chapter 8, verse 4. If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. I mean, he goes so far to even say that your children must have been guilty of some great sin. That's why that house fell on them and crushed them. I mean, it's just completely unnecessary but he just is, in his mind, he's telling it like it is. Chapter 8, verse 5 through 7, he says, if you'll seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you're pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. And though your beginning was small, your latter days will be great. Job, once again, responds chapters 9 and 10. Now, Job feels caught kind of between a rock and a hard place. And you can hear it in this speech in chapters 9 and 10. He knows that the words of his friends ring true. He believed, at one time, he believed the very same thing. But he also now knows that that doesn't fit his situation. So what can he do? What he wants to do is make his case before God. But he he struggles with that because he realizes, I'm just a man. And God is God. What could I even say? You can see the struggle in in chapter 9, verses 19 through 21. He says this, If it is a contest of strength, then behold, he is mighty. If it is a matter of justice, who can summon him? Though I am in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I am blameless, he would prove me perverse. I am blameless. I regard not myself. I loathe my life. See, Job is struggling with, how could I even take this before God? How could I even come before God? But at the end of the day, he knows that's his only choice. He has to complain to God or take his complaint to God. And that's what he does in chapter 10, 1 through 2. He says, I will give free utterance to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend against me. Verses five through seven are your days as the days of man or your years as a man's years that you seek out my iniquity and search for my sin, although you know that I'm not guilty, and there is none to deliver out of your hand. Now Zophar as listen to this, what he's just said when he's heard Job talk to God and say I'm not guilty. And he responds in chapter eleven now. Zophar is going to be the harshest of them all, and I can't really tell if it's his personality or if it's just because he's the last one to talk and he's kind of heard all the other arguments. So what he does here is he rebukes Job for claiming to be innocent, and then he tells Job that he really deserves worse than he is getting. Chapter 11, verses 4 through 6. He says this to Job, For you say, My doctrine is pure, and I am clean in God's eyes. Oh, that God would speak and open His lips to you, and that He would tell you the secrets of wisdom. For He is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. Verses 14 through 16. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away, and let not injustice dwell in your tents. Surely then you will lift up your face without blemish. You will be secure and you will not fear. You will forget your misery. You will remember it as waters that have passed away. Now, Job has one final response in chapters 12 through 14. And he responds with sarcasm. Chapter 12, verse 1 through 3. Then Job answered and said, No doubt you are the people. In other words, no doubt you're the men. You know everything. Wisdom will die with you. But I have understanding as well as you. I'm not inferior to you. Who doesn't know such things as these? See, Job is saying, look, I know everything you know. I used to believe everything you believed. I would have said the same things you're saying. But it doesn't fit the situation. See, they will not give in. And Job's saying, who doesn't know all these things? Everybody knows this. In fact, in verses 7 through 9 of chapter 12, he says this. Ask the beast, and they will teach you. The birds of the heaven, they will tell you. Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. See, Job says, look, I know this is the Lord. I'm not arguing that. Everybody knows that. It's it's God who gives life and breath and takes it away. He says, we all agree on that. Um I know everything that you're saying. Chapter 13 verse 2 through 4. What you know I know. I'm not inferior to you, but I would speak to the almighty and I desire to argue my case with God. As for you, you whitewash with lies, worthless physicians are you all. Now, that ends the first round of speeches. Now in the next two the arguments themselves they don't really change. They, they just keep accusing Job, and, and Job keeps holding on to his integrity. So the speeches themselves, the arguments in the speeches don't really change. But I do want you to keep an eye out how the men themselves will actually change as time goes on. Let's begin the round two of speeches with Eliphaz in verse 15. Now, I want you to remember, in the first round of speeches, Eliphaz was very tactful. He said things like, well, if it was me, I would do this, right? Notice what he says in chapter 15, verses 5 through 13. He says, for your iniquity teaches your mouth, and you choose the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you and not I. Your own lips testify against you. Why does your heart carry you away, and why does your eyes flash that you turn your spirit against God and bring such word out of your mouth. He he uses the word you or your about a dozen times. Now he's pointing the finger. He's not he's he's kind of abandoned the tactfulness and abandoned his gentleness and he's just pointing the finger directly at Job. Now Job will respond in chapters sixteen and seventeen. He says things like this I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all I could also speak as you do if you were in my place. I could join words together against you and shake my head at you. Bildad hears this and responds in chapter 18, and he says this, Why are we counted as cattle? Why are we stupid in your sight? Indeed, the light of the wicked is put out, and the flame of his fire does not shine. Surely, such are the dwellings of the unrighteous. Such is the place of him who knows not God. Now, he's basically, he's questioning whether Job even knows God with some of the things that he's saying. Now, Job responds in, in chapter 19. How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? Have mercy on me, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? Zophar responds in chapter 20. He says this, Do you not know this from old, since man was placed on the earth, that the exulting of the wicked is short, and the joy of the godless but for a moment? The heavens will reveal his iniquity, and the earth will rise up against him. The possessions of his house will be carried away, dragged off in the day of God's wrath. Now Job hears this, and he responds in in chapter 21. And he says almost the opposite. He says this, Why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? Their offspring are established in their presence and their descendants before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear, and no rod of God is upon them. They spend their days in prosperity and peace. They go down to Sheol. Now, so it, I think it was Zophar it was, uh, so saying, Well, you know, the wicked, uh, they, they're, they're, their, their prosperity is short. You know, God deals with them quickly. And Job says, no, wait a minute. That's not always true. You know, sometimes the, the wicked live and reach old age. There, Sometimes they see their descendants. Sometimes their houses are, are safe and the rod of God is not upon them. That's not always true. Now we come to round three. Eliphaz speaks again. Now I'm going to read this in chapter 22, and then we'll come back to it in a little bit. He said this, is not your evil abundant? There is no end to your iniquities. You have exacted pledges of your brothers for nothing, and you've stripped the naked of their clothing. You've given no water to the weary to drink, and you've withheld bread from the hungry. Job responds in 23 and 24, oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. There, an upright man could argue with him, talking about God, and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. Now, at this point, Bildad is kind of running out of steam in chapter 25, and he comes up with just six verses about the general sinfulness of man. How then can man be in the right before God? How can he who is born of woman be pure Behold, even the moon is not bright, and the stars are not pure in his eyes. How much less man, who is a maggot, and the son of man, who is a worm. Now, before we get to um, 26 to 31, which is Job's final reply to his friends, I want you to notice something, how Job's friends change. Specifically, I want to go back in chapter 22 and read that response, the last response from Eliphaz. He said, This is not your evil abundant. There's no end to your iniquities. You have exacted pledges of your brothers for nothing and stripped the naked of their clothing. You've given no water to the weary to drink and you've withheld bread from the hungry. Now, this is a guy who started off very tactful. In the second round of speeches, he started pointing his finger. And now, at the third round, he. of of speeches, he's basically listing Job's sins. Now, we know specifically that Job hasn't done any of this. In Job chapter 31, Job says this, If I have withheld anything that the poor desired, or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail, or have eaten my morsel alone, and the fatherless has not eaten of it, if I've seen anyone perish for lack of clothing, or the needy without covering, and let my shoulder blade fall from my shoulder, and let my arm be broken from his socket. See, we talked about Job was very generous with his wealth and with his goods and with his prosperity. The things that Eliphaz is saying are completely made up. None of those things are true. This formerly gentle friend is attacking Job with brutality, they're not facts. They're just imaginings in his mind. Now, why would he do that? Why would he do that? Well, let me tell you why. Because he's becoming more and more desperate to justify his theology. You see, the longer it goes on, Job just won't give in. And what he's doing is, is he's, he's shi- turning the light around and shining it on uh, Eliphaz's whole philosophy of life. And all of a sudden, it's beginning to question his 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 theology, and and he don't like that at all. And we see that. Let's be honest, we see that all the time. I've seen it my whole life. When when you question somebody's theology, they their philosophy on life, if if there are things that don't quite fit, they'll get angry, they'll get mad, and they'll come back at you. Um, you, you don't you know when you blow up somebody's whole theology like that. Uh, it's not a pretty sight, and you can see that with Eliphaz. He gets very angry. Um, he, he starts accusing, just making up sins in his mind. In, in Bildad's last speech, as as time goes on, he can, like I said, he can only manage six little verses about the general sinfulness of man. And by the way, when it's finally Zophar's turn to, to round out the third round of speeches, he doesn't say anything at all. You see, the, the, the theology of Job's friends... That that simple, rigid, absolute law cannot sustain itself in the end. Their correlation of wickedness and suffering in the world just does not stand up to the evidence of Job. So their speeches become repetitive, they become hostile, and they become shorter as the conversation comes to a, a close. But not only do we see changes in Job's friends, we also see a change in in Job something seems to be happening to Job through these conversations now we know where he started in chapter 3 he started in a bad place okay he he's crying out against the the wisdom of God and even giving him birth Right. So you read chapter three and you, you feel the agony of a man's soul. You a man, as I said, who's who's probably in suffering in severe depression and and he's just his grief is, is is like he said as heavy as the sands of the sea. So we know where he starts. He starts in a bad place, but little by little you watch his faith regaining his strength as he fights against the superficial theology of his friends. And and one of the places that you can see this is the gradual change in the way that he talks about death. For example, in Job 7, 9, he says this, As the cloud fades and vanishes, so he who goes down to Sheol does not come up. Now, in Hebrew, the word Sheol simply means the place of the dead. It doesn't mean the grave, it doesn't mean hell, um, it doesn't mean heaven, it just means the place of the dead, or the place of departed souls and spirits, okay? And he says, the one who goes to Sheol does not come up. In, In chapter 10, verses 20 to 22, he says this, leave me alone, that I may take a little comfort before I go to the place from which I shall not return. To the land of darkness and the shadow of death, a land as dark as darkness itself, as the shadow of death without any order, where or even the light is like darkness. So you can see he's got this idea that I'm going to a place of darkness. I'm going to a place that I'm not going to come back from. That that's and he's talking about life after death. He it looks like he doesn't even believe in that. Now, as the speeches move on, we come to chapter fourteen. And for the first time, he begins to question that. He says this, If a man dies, shall he live again? In Job 17, 13 through 15, he said this, If I hope for Sheol as my house, if I make my bed in darkness, then where's my hope? Who will see my hope? You can see he's beginning to wonder, is that all there is? It it may be something else. Does a man live again? So he's beginning to question that. And then, of course, when we get to chapter 19, verses 25 to 27, one of the most famous statements in the Bible, Job says this, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. You see, Job has wrestled with this throughout these speeches. He's He's been wrestling with this, this life after death. And he goes from not believing to questioning to, to believing. And now he seems to be sure that beyond the grave he will meet God as a redeemer and not as an angry judge. You know, Paul says... In um, the New Testament, he said this. If there's no life after death, then just go on home, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. If there's no life after this, then what's the point, right? And I think Job has begun to see that. It's not necessarily about this life. Not You won't always see God's justice in this life the way that Eliphaz and his friends think it's supposed to be. But in the life to come. You will see it. And I think Job is finally beginning to see that, that there's going to be on the other side, God will make it all right. Now, does that answer all Job's questions? No. Does it answer? Does it solve all his theological problems? Of course not. He still is perplexed as to why God seems arbitrary in the way he parcels out suffering and prosperity in this life. But yet he's confident. In his Redeemer, he's confident in the justice of of God, and I and I think that allows him to hold to his convictions. He believes that God is sovereign, he believes that God is good and just, and he believes in his own integrity, and he holds to those convictions against the simplistic and rigid theology of his three friends. Now, with that, he makes one final speech and puts them to silence. Job 26 through 31. I'll just pick some uh, scriptures out. Job 26, he said this. He stretches out the north over the void, and he hangs the earth on nothing. He binds up the water in his thick clouds, and the cloud that is not split open under them. Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways, and how small a whisper do we hear of him, but the thunder of his power, who can understand? Job 27, my lips will not speak falsehood and my tongue will not utter deceit. Far be it from me to say that you are right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. I hold fast my righteousness and I will not let it go. My heart does not reproach me for any of my days. Job 28, from where then does wisdom come? God understands the way to it and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. And then Job 31, Does not he see my ways and number all my steps? If I have walked with falsehood and my foot is hastened to deceit, let me be weighed in a just balance and let God know my integrity. Next week, we'll turn to chapter 32 and a new friend, a man named Elihu, will show up on the scene and he comes with a new argument. Join us next week if you can.